I want to open by telling you about a guy named Mark. Mark had a doctor's appointment one day. And when the doctor asked Mark about what he did yesterday, he told him about his day. He said, well, yesterday afternoon, I waded across the edge of a lake, escaped from a mountain lion in the heavy brush, marched up and down a mountain, stood in a patch of poison ivy, crawled out of the quicksand, and jumped away from an aggressive rattlesnake. Inspired by this story, the doctor said, Mark, you must be an amazing outdoorsman. No, Mark said, I'm just a lousy golfer. <laughs> that would be my story, honestly. Uh, I, I don't golf. Uh, I have nothing against the sport, but that would be so descriptive of my life right there. You know, and maybe he could use some golf lessons, this guy named Mark. And sometimes people need some help. Uh, maybe they need to get help, whether it's golf or maybe some other area of life. We're taking the next couple of weeks to take a look at the book of Nehemiah in a series that we're calling Rebuild. And the heart behind this series is really to see how to get better through what God did for his people back in the 4th century B.C., uh, you know, the city of Jerusalem, it was the hub of Hebrew culture and the centering place of worship. And it's here in the book of Nehemiah that we learn about how God brought Jerusalem from being a pile of rubble and ruin to a rebuilt and restored place that would ultimately serve as a beacon of God's glory to the nations. Even today, uh, Jerusalem is a well-contested area between three of the five major world religions, between uh, us, uh, you know, Judaism, and Islam. And so, uh, and with Jerusalem, it is that beacon of God's glory, God's presence there. Last week, we learned about how God is always true to his people, no matter what. And how when Nehemiah was faced with a problem, he gathered up the facts and he processed through his emotions of how he felt about those facts. And through it all, he was moved to pray. Nehemiah was a praying man. Uh, he prayed through his problem. And you know, life is a lot like a series of problems. I know that Forrest Gump once said, life is a lot like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And that's a problem sometimes, don't you think? Uh, even though, you know, we may not have the same problems as fourth century Jews, we all have problems. We all have challenges and obstacles. Maybe it's as trivial as being a bad golfer or maybe that's a really big deal to you because that's your favorite hobby. Whatever your chosen hobby might be, maybe, you know, you have problems with woodworking. I don't know. Maybe it's a big illness that you have or, you know, some hurt that's happened to your family or some relationship. In many ways, life is full of problems needing to be solved and your ability and your determination to solve them could very well be 
your key to success going forward. Our country has all kinds of problems, doesn't it? I mean, I, can I get an amen on that one, right? From in, I don't know if I'm too excited about it, but it's an amen moment. From, uh, from inflation to uh, the public health crisis that's going on still, unrest and division, new social norms and dynamics that have all been brought on because of the pandemic or maybe because, you know, just accentuated by us all isolating. And through it all, everyone is trying their best not to live in fear, or, or at least they're trying. And yet we get wave after wave of some kind of new challenge coming our way most of the time. We all have our own list of problems to solve today. You have your own list. Maybe it's the honeydew list that your, that your spouse gave you. I don't know. But let's see what kind of problem-solving blueprint that the Bible has to teach us about through Nehemiah's story, shall we? Uh, the title for today's message is Planning the Solution. Planning the Solution. The, our main passage today is Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 20. And the big idea that we're going to be exploring together this morning is that with God's grace and help, we can rebuild. With God's grace and help, we can rebuild. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 1. Um, I'll be reading from the New International Version today, but whatever version that you read is just fine. Nehemiah 2, beginning in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. This is Nehemiah speaking. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting by, beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors 
of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding so they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Amen. Whew! Look at that history. That'll preach. All right. Now, the first, the very first step in our problem-solving blueprint is to practice patience in waiting. Don't you just love that? Practice patience in waiting. Last week, we left off with Nehemiah. He was weeping and praying over the ruins of Jerusalem. Uh, his family had come in from out of town and had shared the news. He asked for it, I mean, really. But, um, you know, so he was crying. He was crying out to God on behalf of the city and its people. That all started in the month of Kislev, which doesn't mean a whole lot to me uh, or to you. Uh, that's in about uh, mid-November to mid-December. And now we find at the beginning of chapter 2 that it's the month of Nissan. That's not a really cool car company, although it is. In the, but it, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, Nissan would have been in the springtime. So a couple of months ago by, by these, you know, our standards. And since we aren't super familiar with the Jewish months of the year, to give some context, this would have been a four-month gap. More than a quarter of the year gone. Nehemiah practices patience in the waiting. During this four-month period, he processed his grief. Like we talked about last time, he wept and he prayed. 
But he also listened, and he planned. He made plans. Hearing that news from Jerusalem could have caused Nehemiah to spin out in sadness and just be paralyzed with grief and just feeling bad about the situation. We do that all the time, some, you know, at, at times when we hear sad news where it can just make us stop and pause and it can kind of immobilize us from any forward motion. But in the waiting, through patience, he waited to hear what God was going to say to him. In the rest of chapter 2, we're going to see that, you know, Nehemiah had a clearly defined plan. He could have prayed up and flew by the seat of his pants, but it seems like the details were, you know, of this plan were actually pretty well thought out. Nehemiah could have put the plan together in just a few days, but instead he waited a few months. And in that place of waiting, actively seeking God in prayer, we see that this man practiced patience in the waiting for God's timing because, as I have often learned the hard way, the right thing at the wrong time can sometimes really be the wrong thing for us. And God's timing is always right. Seasons of waiting, ironically, although I don't know about you, but I hate them. I hate waiting. I hate waiting in line. I hate seasons of waiting. It's like, hurry up and go. But so seasons of waiting, they can actually be a gift to us. Because instead of getting distracted by project after project, waiting can be a place of anticipation that can help us clarify what we see and what we think. And it can also lead us to think through the details of what can be done to solve these problems. With God's grace and help, we can rebuild and we gain this kind of insight like Nehemiah did through the practice of patience in the waiting. The second step in our problem-solving blueprint is prayer over fear. Prayer over fear. When facing the task of problem-solving, there's always the temptation to cut a corner, to take the easy way out. The place where you may know what to do, but also you just kind of need the courage to, to get on and do it, right? Nehemiah shows us that this is why we need to stay in an attitude of prayer. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. And this is the example we see lived in the life and character of Nehemiah. Now, King Artaxerxes was in charge of the great Persian Empire. And as the ultimate authority in all the land, he got things his way. He was the absolute ruler of the world's most powerful nation in that time. Artaxerxes was the son of King Xerxes in Persia, and that might sound familiar if you've ever read the book of Esther in the Bible, or if you've seen the movie One Night with the King. Uh, king Xerxes of Persia was the king who tried to, uh, he got tired of his wife, 
uh, Queen Vashti, and he sent her away. It's this whole ordeal that kicks off the book. And so then he wants to get a new queen. Why not? Uh, he ended up picking a, this young Jewish woman named Esther, and according to her story, Esther was the queen. But even she was afraid to go visit the king when she hadn't been sent for. That was a big taboo in that time. You know, the king will send for you. You don't just get to come and go as you please. It was a real offense, and it could have resulted in execution. So there was an understandable fear that went along with being in that king's physical presence, even if you were close to him. But that was Xerxes and Esther, and at this point, his son Artaxerxes was just as powerful of a king. And here in chapter 2, we see that Nehemiah was on the job, ministering in the king's presence. If, if you want to think of it this way, if it helps you, it would be a lot like he was the bartender of the king, like the personal bartender of the king, cupbearer to the king. And there's a lot of nuance and why that would be that way, but Think of that kind of relationship with like, oh, let me grab you a drink. Here we go. And like, would you like some coffee with that? Sure, why not? Would you like some sugar in that? I don't know. Anyway, I digress. But here in chapter two, we see Nehemiah, he's on the job, he's ministering, and he does not have a poker face at all. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe he had just come, uh, you know, from his, his, uh, his lodging, wherever he was staying. He, maybe he had just been pouring out his heart to the Lord again, crying. Maybe he hadn't used a cool washcloth to, you know, uh, to rub off the puffiness of his cheeks. Maybe he hadn't wiped away his tears. Or maybe, you know, he had started his shift okay, you know, put on a brave face and all of that, but then just a thought crossed his mind um, about his heavy heart and what had been laid on his heart for the past four months. And in that place where fear would have been, you know, the most understandable course of action, Nehemiah turned to God, and he chose prayer over fear. And we see that in the text, that he had nothing else to protect him but God's grace and help. So remember that no poker face thing. Artaxerxes, he asked that question with all his clout and authority, saying, why is your face so sad? Literally, it would be as blunt and rude as like, why is your face so wrong? Like, seeing that you're not sick, so he kind of has some perception as king, there's nothing but sadness of the heart. And even though this was the last thing that Nehemiah wanted to hear from this absolute powerful monarch, God was working in that place that day, and the door was opening for Nehemiah. And so in verse 4, he says, then he prayed to the God of heaven. But Nehemiah didn't have a chance to, you know, steal away and spend a half hour in prayer. He didn't have a chance to get, you know, word out on the prayer chain, you know, please pray for me. Uh, King just asked me a really interesting question, and I've got to be honest or else, eh, you know, this is not good. He, but he did he said one of those quick little prayers that we sometimes see in the Bible. Sometimes, you know, those are the best prayers. Maybe you've been driving before uh, when it's snowing outside and, or it's icy and whatnot, and you're 
car skids out of control, uh, and you say something like, ready or not, Lord, here I come. <laughs> or maybe it's like one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, who was trying to walk on water, and it wasn't working out, and he started to sink, and he prayed one of the best prayers that's ever been prayed, Lord, save me, and Jesus did save him. Nehemiah had the chance to communicate the plans to solve the problems in Jerusalem. But instead of relying on his own ability, he kept the prayer lines open between him and the Lord so that in that place he was still in an attitude of prayer. Nehemiah chose prayer over fear because the only way forward was if God was in it. Because it's only with God's grace and help that he could rebuild and that we can as well. The third step in our problem-solving blueprint is don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to ask. The time was right, door was open, Nehemiah had a plan, and he wasn't afraid to ask the king. During those four months uh, of waiting and preparing and being patient, he had developed a very specific plan. The only problem was that he needed an assist from the king. He needed time off work. He needed official documents to show that he was on official business from the king in order to give him safe passage anywhere throughout the Persian Empire at the time, anywhere he traveled. He also needed the royal credit card. Amen. Hallelujah. He asked for the letters so that he could get the lumber that he needed. He even knew where to go shopping. You guys, this is amazing. Nehemiah was ready and he wasn't afraid to ask the king when the time came to do so. Now, it might look from the list that he gave the king that Nehemiah was asking for a lot. Why would he ask for so much? In a very practical level, he knew the king had the resources. King Artaxerxes was the richest and most powerful person in the world at that time, and Nehemiah knew that he could afford it and that he could make things happen real easy. The truth is, our God is a whole lot more powerful than some Persian king some 2,500 years ago. He is more powerful than even the richest, most powerful people in this world today. Fill in the blank celebrity person with millions and billions of dollars that you can think of. You can ask God for all you need because he is able to grant your request. The Bible tells us that God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask, think, or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. That's found in Ephesians 3.20, by the way. Nehemiah had to pull together his courage just to ask an earthly king, and you need to pull together your courage to ask your heavenly father for whatever's on your heart. He wants to bless you. He wants to guide you. He wants to direct you in your life. All you need to do is ask. Another interesting example that's laid out for us in the life of Nehemiah is that 
throughout all those four months of prayer and fasting and maybe even wrestling with God at times over this problem in Jerusalem, he did not conclude that someone else should go. This was a task that God had laid on Nehemiah's heart, and God was purposely raising up Nehemiah to help God's people. What often happens is that, you know, I don't know about you, but for me sometimes, you know, we see a need, and maybe we spend some time in prayer, and then we ultimately determine that God needs to send somebody else to fill this need. But maybe, I would submit to you that maybe we see the need because actually God is bringing it to our attention and he has a plan for us to accomplish his will here on earth. Lots of people may see that there's a problem and that something needs to be done about it. Maybe there are even others who might, you know, they look at the problem and they even see, wow, if you just did this and you provided this solution, problem solved, solving all the world's problems, right? But there are even fewer who are willing to roll up their sleeves and actually go and do the job that is before them. So after seeking the Lord for four months and probably praying prayers like the prophet Isaiah did, here am I, Lord, send me, it's clear that God wanted this man with all his gifts and abilities and background Nehemiah was not afraid to ask because he knew that he knew who he was. He knew that he was the one that God was raising up to go to Jerusalem to rebuild this wall, that that was the purpose that God had given him. So at just the right time after praying and fasting and planning, Nehemiah was bold and he asked the king for exactly what it would take to get the job done. And the king actually granted it. He said, okay, Nehemiah, when are you going to be back? He gave Nehemiah everything he asked for. With God's grace and help, we can rebuild, and we see that in this man's story. But even with the green light and all the resources at his disposal, Nehemiah is more patient than me. <laughs> Nehemiah practices even more patience. In verses 9 through 15, he gets to Jerusalem, and he doesn't just roll into town, gather all the people together for a big meeting and announce, I'm here. Here's why I'm here. Let's do this. He took a few days, probably, and to even spend more time in prayer once he got there. And in that time of patience and waiting, now in Jerusalem, Nehemiah, he got an, an actual real-life assessment of the situation in detail. He circled the walls on horseback in the middle of the night, looking at all the great mounds of broken stones and mortar and burned gates. It's interesting to note that by this point in Israel's history, no one living at that time could remember Jerusalem in any other condition. For citizens of that once great city, there was zero motivation to build that wall again. Maybe they thought it was hopeless. Maybe they just accepted it as a reality, and even though it hurt, they accepted it that way. Most of their neighbors, they really had a strong interest in seeing them not succeed in getting that job done. 
But that was before Nehemiah came on the scene to remind them that with God's grace and help, they could rebuild. Now, the fourth step. Don't worry, we'll get to potluck soon. The fourth step in our problem-solving blueprint is to remember what God has done in the past. Remember what God has done in the past. In verse 17, Nehemiah finally speaks to the people of Jerusalem. He, he rolls into town. He doesn't talk to most people. And he's just looking around, getting a lay of the land. Doesn't talk to anybody in you know, any official capacity. But here we are, verse 17. He speaks to the people of Jerusalem. And once again, what we see here is that the Holy Spirit gives Nehemiah just the right thing to say at just the right time. We also see a man who was a, a natural leader. He took time to understand the people. Some of the people had lived there for two generations, and no one, even at that point, had rebuilt the wall yet. They had lived in that disgrace for all that time. Now, Nehemiah could have said, I've got letters from the king, soldiers at my disposal, and I got the money, guys. Things will be different from now on. So get up, get going, you lazy bums, and start building this wall. I was practicing, you know, my sermon this morning, and Angie was like, hallelujah, get up and go. Come on, here we go. But that's not what Nehemiah did. He didn't do that, you guys. He waited three days amazing. He rode around, he absorbed the difficult situation. He saw how much it probably had hurt them every day to look at that broken city, probably because it really was hurting Nehemiah to see all this with his own eyes. And then he, he uh, essentially said to them, I'm summarizing, we've got a really hard job to do. And notice that he didn't say, you guys have a hard job to do. He said, we have one. We are in trouble, is what the, the text actually says. And then he goes on to say, but let me tell you what God has already done. And then he lays out the story of how he got the king's permission and the hopefulness of these letters that he had brought with him. And he identified with these people. He encouraged them and gave them a reason for hope. And in that place, the people heard God speaking to them and they got to work because God's grace and help, you know, because of God's grace and help, they could rebuild. And so can we. The fifth and final step in this problem-solving blueprint is to continue to trust God. Continue to trust God. So in the text we see Nehemiah was met with two people who made it their goal to oppose Nehemiah at every turn. <laughs> Whatever Nehemiah was there to do, they were not about it. Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. They even sound like villainous people, right? Now, a Horonite is a person who worships the Canaanite god Horon, uh, who is kind of a god of destruction or, or that kind of thing, god of the earth, you know, think earthquakes, that kind of deal. Tobiah was a citizen of Ammon, which was the country that we now call Jordan in the Middle East. Ammon was uh, one of the tribes descended from Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. And 
you know, Ammon, they were related to Israel, but Abraham and Lot, they lived a long time ago. And the Ammonites had been enemies of Israel for a thousand years at this point. The end of chapter 2 is this first show of opposition from the enemies of Nehemiah. In our lives, we meet a lot of people like Sanballat and Tobiah, don't we? Uh, someone who causes you problems or, or tries to make your life miserable. I mean, there's accidents and mistakes that happen, but they just, they go out of their way to cut you off in traffic. I don't know. Here we go. But at key moments in my life, I know when I was doing something that God had given me to do, I had Sanballats and Tobias in my life, giving me all kinds of trouble and trying to get me off mission. And I'm sad to say that there have been moments in my life where I've let them get me off track. And God's brought me back around. And now I'm on a good path and I'm, I'm happy to be here. Maybe you have a Sanballat or a Tobiah in your life right now. We're going to talk more about these guys in the next couple of weeks and what we can do about them. But let me ask you, what is God calling you to do? What area in your life do you need to rebuild? Uh, you know, spoiler alert, I'll, I'll just tell you now, it's probably not putting up a wall around the city. We already have two bridges and natural barriers to the city. I don't think our neighbors would appreciate it very much if we just erected these big walls and it's like, what are you doing? I want to travel to Mapleton. I don't know. You know, it's probably not that, but maybe you need to rebuild some relationships. Maybe there are some spiritual habits in your life that you need to return to uh, and begin the process of rebuilding those things. Maybe you have some other areas in your life, fill in the blank, that need your attention. I just want to encourage you this morning that we don't need to worry about the opposition that will come our way because God is greater than anything and anyone that can stand in our way. And with God's grace and help, you can rebuild. And I can too. And that's good news.